so, so sorry. And then I will speak at high speed, and even this morning I was chopping things out. Um, first of all, so you guys have heard how I've started a job, and one of the side effects of starting a job is dropping balls mentally left and right. So one of the giant things I dropped was the auction is Friday, and we did not do our usual collection, and I feel terrible about it because if you've been to the auction, they have this wonderful moment where they um, are doing the fun to need, and they're like, the lovely ladies of women at the well have collected X amount of dollars if anyone would like to match. And now it'll be like, the stupid ladies of women at the well totally let us down because Christina totally forgot. So I feel bad about that. So here's my backup plan. I thought, we'll take our collection, and they will think, well, they've been nice to us in the past, but they forgot us this year. And then next week when they come, we'll be, ha and we'll, we'll, we'll have a little present for them. That's my secret plan, okay? It's not as good as imagined. But... And we can Venmo you if you want to write a check okay. today. Yes. If some of you, um, we're, we're like, what if nobody brought a check? If some of you would like to Venmo me, I can write a check. The only problem with that is, of course, there's no tax receipt for you. But if you don't care, and if it's like 25 bucks and you don't care, then um, I'm Christina Dudley at Gmail. You can come talk to me. And, um, oh, yes, yes, hang on a second, Margie. So, and then I can just write a check based on whatever the total was, or else I can take a cruise to Mexico. You know, one or the other. But if I don't come again, you know what I chose. But, so yes, please, if you would like to make a contribution to Lovely Eastside Academy, this week or secretly next week before they come, or you'd like to Venmo me, we will put it together and surprise them and say, we are forgetful ladies, but we still love you. And it's on yeah. each table. And it's on each table. The little envelope that says Eastside Academy is on each table. Yeah, Sandy's holding one up too. It looks like an envelope. And then Margie, Margie has a table at the auction, which is this Friday evening. I will be there. A table at the auction, and two people had to bag out on her. So if you would like to go to the auction, it's super fun. And Margie has two seats at her table. Stand up, Margie. This is Margie. So come talk to Margie. Two seats at her table. If you've never sat on a table with Margie, she's loads of fun. So anyways, OK. Oh, Yes, please make the checks to Eastside Academy or Christina's Mexican Cruise. Either one. I'm just kidding. Okay, now we have to get to Hosea because I realized when I printed it out, I have many, many notes. Okay. <sighs> so I was reading this week. Maybe you guys have heard recently the studies when they say people who read fiction are more, have more empathy than people who don't read and that sort of thing. Anybody hear of those studies? So, nobody. Well, then what happy news for you if you are a reader of fiction. You have more empathy than people who don't read. Um, and they talked about studying how, studying people's brains when they read a story and what happens in their brains. And they found this amazing thing. It's like, if you read an action word like kick or punch or kiss, right? The part of your brain that lights up when you actually do that action lights up when you just read about it. So this is why they're thinking, oh, this is why maybe it helps us develop empathy for each other because it's the closest we can kind of come to experiencing what someone else is experiencing, right? This might explain why some of us like to read romances because what is more fun than falling in love, right? 
So it's like, hey, let's light up those parts of my brain, right? And um, I don't know what that means about men wanting to read like thrillers and people killing each other. I'm not sure. But I like to read people killing each other. So what does that say about me? I'm not sure. Um, so, all right, I'm, I have a slide. I have a slide. David, after Solomon, 
Rehoboam came along and things went south from there. They split into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and they each kind of went, went their own way while keeping an eye on each other. Um, so Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom, right? To the kingdom of Israel. And if you remember, the kingdom of Israel is the one that uh, gets defeated first. And then Judah hangs out another 150 years. So Israel is the one to just go down first, right? And in fact, in my own reading, the first tangent, I'm in Kings, and I'm in the part where uh, Jeroboam, the first Jeroboam, he sets up, he's like, well, now we're a separate kingdom. And we can't go down to Solomon's temple anymore, so I'm going to set up some holy places up here. Which politically makes sense, right? If you're a new country, you don't want people having to travel down to the old country to worship. So he set up places of worship. And, and that was the beginning, well, that was a, a major milestone in the problem, right? That we are going to see today. Um, okay, so our main themes. Our main themes in Hosea. Israel's abandonment of God. How they abandon God. And then the punishment for the abandonment. What happens when Israel, the northern kingdom, abandons God? God then calls them to repentance. We're going to get to that today. A lot of these uh, prophets, you'll see, they, they kind of go in little cycles, right? And we'll cycle back to the same things over and over. So we should all, this should all sink in at some point with some prophet over the year. And then finally, the hope for future reconciliation. So even though we're only doing chapters one through three, we hit all those themes. We hit them all. Okay, so where are we? Look at this chart. I bet you can't read this. Basically, it's, it's a version of what Mona handed out. So I hope everyone still has their historical settings of the prophet's handout. But it's just saying what I just said, right? Um, we have gone back in time from Daniel. Daniel, if you remember, is post-exile. Everybody's exile, right? Post-Judah's exile. So we have gone back in time. And um, you might wonder, why did we do Daniel and Hosea? Well, that's the order they're in in the Bible. So there we go. It's a good, as reason, good reason as any. So if you go back, you can see Hosea on the Israel side. And um, you can see how long his, um, his ministry lasted. And that he was a contemporary of Amos and of Jonah. So... Um, he has been chosen, you can see he comes at the tail end of the northern kingdom. So he has been chosen by God in the latter days of Israel's existence to speak for God to his people. Um, they have gone far astray, and they are headed for a mighty fall in 722 BC. They'll be defeated by Assyria, they'll be carted off into exile, and their kingdom will exist no more, and it will never come back, right? It will become kind of this, uh, if you remember, after they're carted into exile, they bring in other people to help settle the land, and you end up with sort of mixed blood people who uh, the later uh, Jews were kind of leery of, and they were the Samaritans, right? They were mixed blood people. They were not the original uh, folks anymore. I mean, not pure blood, original folks. Okay, so even the years leading up to the end are tumultuous. Um, we learn in verse 1 that, quote, the word of the Lord came to Hosea in the reigns of King Uzziah, Kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah, and in the reign of Jeroboam, son of Joash of Israel. Well, if that makes it sound like Jeroboam reigned the whole time that those, all those uh, um, 
kings of Judah reigned? He did not, right? Um, Jeroboam did not even last out Uzziah's reign. In fact, there were five kings after Jeroboam in that same time period referred to, and out of those five, four were assassinated. So it was a very violent, dark, tumultuous, unpredictable time in Israel. And so I was thinking, well, you know, why mention the kings of Judah at all, right? He's not a prophet to Judah. Why mention them at all if Hosea is a prophet to Israel? I was thinking, when we were cleaning out uh, Scott's parents' house, uh, we found this stereoscope. And it belonged to Scott's grandma, his maternal, his paternal grandmother. And I don't know if you've ever looked through a stereoscope, what it is, it's like, it's like you look through these things and it's got a, uh, uh, like a, a wood piece here so that your eyes cannot combine the picture they're seeing. Each eye sees a picture separately. So you can see there's like two pictures and they're identical, but, but you're, it does funny things with your brain. And so what happens when you look through the stereoscope is the two flat images become 3D, right? It's some weird brain thing, right? If you split out our eyes, it becomes 3D. And um, so anyways, what we are seeing here in Hosea is a stereoscope, right? We have this dual perspective. He is a prophet to Israel, but Judah is also later holding up his teachings and reading them because between the two of them, they will get the full picture, right? Between the two of them, they will get the full picture of what is happening. Uh, this warning, uh, this suffering, and also a warning to those who the end has not yet come, but they can learn from this, right? Okay, so we have a bad time, a dark time, um, and yet life goes on, right? You remember when Jesus says in Matthew 24, he says, just as it was in the days of Noah, people in Hosea's time were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, right? What do we do when the world is coming to an end? Well, we just go about our lives. We don't know what else to do, right? We may make the kit and put it in the closet, but after that, you just go to work, right? Do the normal things. Okay. So here we have Hosea. Let's see. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry. I have an RSV. Harlotry. Um, you may have whoredom, which I think is just an awful word. I mean, it's not a great thing, but anyways. Uh, go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry by forsaking the Lord. Oh, wait, hello. For the land commits great harlotry by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name not pitied. For I will no more have pity on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have pity on the house of Judah and I will deliver them by the Lord their God. I will not deliver them by bow, nor by sword, nor by war, nor by horses, nor by horsemen. Right? Power of God alone. When she had weaned, not pitied, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name 
not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Okay. Yowza, right? If reading a story about an experience is the brain's next best thing to experiencing it yourself, nothing beats actually experiencing it yourself, right? Um, if you were there in church on Sunday, Scott talks about how we are body, soul, mind, spirit, everything. Everything goes into making us, right? So if you read a fictional story, it might involve your brain, but when you live something, it involves every bit of you, body, soul, mind, spirit, right? Every bit of you goes through that experience. And so that is what he has Hosea do. You are going to experience my experience. So if you ever thought you want to be a prophet, you don't really want to be a prophet, right? <laughs> um, so what does God command Hosea to experience? Hey, the first thing he commands him to experience is love, right? Go get yourself a wife. Love somebody. It's interesting that God does not command a particular woman. He doesn't say, go get Gomer. See, Gomer, go her. Um, presumably, with prostitution being the world's oldest profession, right, there was more than one woman to choose from. And Hosea was free to choose according to his preferences, right? God maybe restricted the pool a little, right? And considering that people used to have arranged marriages, it probably wasn't that restricted. It was probably more wide open than a normal kid got, right? Um, and he allowed Hosea to choose for himself, to love on his own. So Hosea got to express a preference. Well, okay, I'm going to pick a wife of harlotry. She's kind of cute, you know? I kind of like her. Okay, so he commanded him to experience love. And then he commanded him to experience infidelity, right? Go get yourself a wife, whoever you like, right? But she has to be of whoredom, right? Go get yourself a wife of whoredom and children of whoredom, right? Commit to someone, Hosea, but she will not commit to you. Not in more than words. She will not commit to you. She will say the vows, but she will not keep them, right? Sort of sad and heartbreaking, okay? And then Hosea, I want you to experience betrayal, right? For the land will stray from following the Lord, right? This betrayal that you are experiencing is symbolic of something else, right? Just as your wife is go, gonna go run around on you, my beloved wife has been running around on me. And this will lead to brokenness, right? Child number one, name him Jezreel. If you looked at the, um, the verse in Kings that was referenced, Jezreel is where uh, a former king of Israel, Ahab, famous for being a terrible guy, where Ahab and his queen Jezebel, famous for being a terrible gal, right? Where they had this guy murdered because they wanted to take his vineyard, right? They're like, oh, that's a nice vineyard. What should we do? Well, why don't we kill him and then it's ours? Yeah, 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 yeah. And they did it, right? So it was this bloody sort of founding of, of, um, of their dynasty and their way of doing things. So, so brokenness, I want you to experience brokenness. This child of yours is going to be named for this moment of betrayal by Israel, right? Okay, and Hosea, you're going to experience anger. There's gonna be some anger, right? Name her, child number two, Lo Ruhamah. For I will no longer accept the house of Israel or pardon them. 
Logan Mama can be um, translated not pitied, as I said. It can be translated not accepted. Oh my gosh, can you imagine if you had been born and your dad said, I'm gonna name you, that's not my kid, right? <laughs> wow, right, wow. And then, Hosea, you're gonna experience a desire for revenge, right? God is very hurt, and we see him go through these emotions about this situation. Name him, child number three, Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Ouch, right? It's over. It's over. Our relationship is over. Um, we're going to talk about these in more detail, but first I want to talk about why God commanded Hosea to have this heart-ripping experience. <coughs> okay, number one to embody how God loves his people, right? Um, the Bible uses in many, many places, we've talked about it before, the analogy of marriage, to talk about how God loves his people. Um, it's in Isaiah, it's in Ezekiel, it's in Hosea, it's in Jesus uses it, the church uses it, um, Revelation, Genesis to Revelation. It is one of God's favorite analogies, right? Love and marriage, husband and wife, um, to describe his feelings for us. Probably analogy, Second runner-up, or the first runner-up, first runner-up is probably parent-child, right? Parent-child. God uses that one as well. And, and then friends. Friends is like a distant third, right? Um, but love and marriage is the number one, right? And I think because, yes, we feel intense things for our children, but love and marriage are different from that parental role in two very important ways, right? One is that, sorry about small print, um, in marriage, we choose to love the person, right? Out of all the world, we point to another person and we say, you, I love you, right? I have chosen you. There is no biological obligation as with children. Um, there is no evolutionary pressure. Got to pass on my genes. Got to make sure the next generation, you know, makes it into the future. There is none of that. You just wandered around the world and you said, oh my gosh, you are so lovable, I love you, right? It is, a, it is an act of choice. A, a, there is no pressure. Um, love for a spouse does not get any boosts from other circumstances, right? It just is, which means the flip side is also true, right? We can choose not to love the person. This is where a lot of pain comes from, right? You choose to love someone, they, they choose to love you, you promise, you la 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 la, and then they unchoose you, right? Very, very painful. Um, we may not always feel love for our children, but other imperatives keep us going in the parental role, right? You stay at your post, you do the parental things, right? You just got to it. Um, but that is not true for spousal love. People are a lot more willing to sort of dump the duty side of things when it comes to their spouse, right? As some of us have painfully discovered, um, when we or our spouse decide to break our vows and just get the heck out of there, right? So God compares himself to a husband to show that he has chosen us. He does not have to. He has chosen us. He did this willingly because he loves us. He has chosen us out of all the world to share life with and, and to just commit forever, right? He has made that choice. Um, and like a husband, he makes this choice concrete with vows and covenants, right? 
The Bible is full of promises. It's full of covenants. I have chosen you, Israel. You are my people. This is how you're going to know. This is the covenant, right? And, and God is going to keep that covenant even when we break it, right? He is going to keep that covenant. Like marriage, he makes vows to us. Um, like marriage, he promises us things. He promises us faithfulness, provision, right? his presence, his forgiveness, always working for our best. If you, if you dig through the Bible, Lord, what do you promise us? These are the things he promises. Like a husband promises a wife, I will do these things for you. I swear before God, I will do these things for you our lives long, right? Okay. And like a husband, he gives us a choice about the matter, right? We can choose to love him back, or we can choose to look around and see if maybe we can't do a little bit better, right? Yeah, he's not that great. Who, what, who else? Who else is kind of interested in me, and I'm kind of interested in them, and maybe life can be exciting again. I can pick somebody better, right? So this is why God commands Hosea to have this experience to understand what it means to choose in love and have somebody pick you for a little while and then turn their back on you. Um. Yes, and to embody the pain that idolatry causes him. So the Bible says when we turn our back on God, it is like a wife turning her back on her husband. Right? If we are married to God and we flirt with idols, we are unfaithful to our true love. We forget about all the things we said when we loved that guy, right? Um, if you do a cursory reading of the Bible, there are plenty of idols. They are there from the get-go. Um, they'll mention household gods, way back with Jacob and his wives, right? Rachel runs off with the household gods. Um, we hear about Baal, we hear about Dagon, we hear about Asherah, we hear about temples of the sun and of the moon, Milcom, there's lots of idols. Every, every little people around them had their own um, favorite god, and Israel eventually just took them all and worshiped them all, right? Um, in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 7, the wife Israel thinks, I will go after my lovers who supply my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. In other places, Israel looks to foreign alliances and foreign gods to cover her bases. Um, so, like I said, I'm reading in Kings, and there was the chapter, remember Solomon takes all these wives, Wives from everywhere, and some are trade alliances, and some are military alliances, and I'm sure some were just like really cute, and he liked them too. But what is the result, right? All these marriages equal all these gods already, even before Israel splits from Judah. All, marriage introduces infidelity, right? Multiple marriages introduces infidelity into Israel. Um, so Israel began to look to its idols for provision, for protection, for kind of cover your bases, right? And in return, started giving the idols the allegiance and the offerings she had promised to give only her husband, right? Only her husband. There started to be other shrines where you could do this, that, and the other, and you could make little offerings, and you could worship at these places that were not her husband, right? They were not God, whom she originally promised to love. Okay, and so God says in chapter 2, verse 10, it was I, it was I, God, 
who bestowed on her the new grain and wine and oil, I who lavished silver on her and gold, which they used for Baal, right? Everything you had to give to your other lovers was stuff that I gave you, right? Because I loved you. I gave that stuff to you and you turned right around and just spent it on someone else. How bad does that feel, right? When even, even in a small way, right? You give your kids money for X and they turn around and spend it on Y. That's not why that money was given to you, right? I gave you that money for your school. I'm not speaking from any experience here. <laughs> I gave you that money for your books this quarter and you turn around and spent it on this, right? That was not why I gave it to you because I love you. I'm trying to provide for you. I'm trying to take care of you. I want your best. And look what you did with it, right? And so we have experienced this. We have experienced giving out of love and desire and just wanting to cherish the person. And they just grind their heel in your face and spit on you, right? So God is saying, this is what you've done to me. Everything good in your life I have given you. And you don't give me the credit for it. And you turn around and you keep running to these other things as if they gave it to you. They did not give it to you. Everything good in your life came from me, right? Your husband. Okay. So God would say the same to us, right? If he is the one who loves us and watches over us and provides for us, why do we always run to other places, right? I don't have a little shrine to Baal in my home, but I have shrines to money. I spent a lot of time working on a budget this week and trying to figure out this. I spend a lot of time thinking about money, right? I've got two kids in college. I spend a lot of time thinking about money. Where can I get more, right? And look, I got more, but now I forgot his, I forgot his again, right? Where can I get more? Um, I was too busy, Lord, worshiping at this other shrine to remember the, so anyways, not that I feel guilty about it, but, okay, so why do we worship money? Why do we worship youth? Why do we worship food? Why do we worship entertainment? Why do we worship health? Why do we worship sex? Why do we worship alcohol? Why do we worship drugs, right? Why, when we are lonely or afraid, we might say, I'm lonely and afraid, and then we run off to take care of it ourselves, right? Um, we look for solace anywhere we can find it. We are not very faithful women, sadly. Um, maybe one of you is faithful, and that's really awesome. But the general mode is we look for quick help whenever we can find it, right? Whenever, wherever we can find it. Why are we so quick to think he isn't there, right? And that he doesn't love us when we have been the ones who have been blinded. So God is trying to say, you know, Hosea went through a very painful many years, right? And God is saying, this is what it's been like to be me, to love and to choose you and to have you reject me. And not just reject me, but to like throw all your other lovers in my face, right? Oh, well, God, you're okay, but you know, money, if I could just have some more money, everything would be okay, right? Oh, you know, God, you're fine. But if I could just have this one relationship with this one person, I'd never ask for anything again, right? Okay, so then we have the consequences. What are the consequences of idolatry? Number one is intergenerational brokenness, right? Not only does our, our unfaithfulness harm our relationship with God, it leads to brokenness that crosses generations which Hosea also experiences. Raising these children who, if you look at their names, he probably is aware are not his children, right? Um, 
we were driving down to California this summer and we were listening to this book on CD called It's All Relative and it's about genetics and blah, blah, blah. And there's a whole chapter on, he does the 23andMe and so he was, or you know, the Ancestry.com, all that business. That Scott did, remember I told you, and he had like, Scott had the most boring history ever of like thousands of years of cousins marrying cousins in Britain. <laughs> Not only like, ew, but also boring. Um, but anyways, in the book, obviously Scott didn't make the book because that is so boring, right? But this one guy made the book because he, um, his sister did this test and she goes, I don't, I didn't match you. Our dads don't match. What? Right? There were, um, there were eight children in the family. Was it eight or, it's eight or nine. Eight or nine children in the family. So they're like, this is strange, right? And dad is dead by this point. This is strange. They all get tested. Eight of the nine have different fathers. So mom got around, right? And so then it started leading to all these things, like one of the children saying, oh, that's why that one neighbor always gave me big presents every Christmas and not you guys. It's like, so um, even at my own new workplace, uh, same thing, did a, did, a, did a test, found out, oh, oh, unknown older siblings, right? Before dad married mom, he had a little fling in high school, then he had a little fling in college, then he was with mom, and I said, you better watch out, there might be younger children too, because he was only with mom until the youngest child was six months old, and then boom, he was on to the next one. So it's like, oh, right? Infidelity can lead to intergenerational brokenness. Um, it can also lead to anger and a desire for revenge, right? Ever been through a divorce? Ever uh, been known anyone close to you going through divorce? They usually are not very pretty, right? You can usually count on one hand good divorces where they're friends, everything's okay, it's all done, we've worked through it, da-da-da. And then for every good divorce, you can think of probably five horrendous ones. Horrendous ones, right? Um, and it requires an effort of will not to badmouth the other spouse, especially if you think it was their fault, right? If it was 90% their fault, it is very difficult not to badmouth the other spouse. Um, and even if we can manage not to act on our anger, like, okay, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it about your father, you know. Um, we give our imaginations free reign, right? Like, uh, but we fantasize about, oh, just wait till you find out all the stuff he did, and blah, 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 right? We give free reign to our imaginations. So it's interesting to note how God's anger, anger being betrayed, and his desire for revenge play out in Hosea. First thing is there is truth telling, right? There is truth-telling. The children are named for what they are, children of brokenness, right? Not accepted as a legitimate child of God, literally not his people, right? They are the offspring of a different father, right? So God, by giving these children, telling Hosea to give his children these terrible names, he's saying this is the truth, right? This is the truth about who they are. This is the truth. I may be saying it in anger, but this is the truth about who they are. There is, because of this unfaithfulness, there is intergenerational brokenness, and this is the result. They are not my children, right? Also, that there are natural consequences, right? 
A broken marriage covenant leads to rejection. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. How am I in this? What? What happened to my bookmark? Okay, chapter 2, verse 2. He says, um, plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Plead that she put away her harlotry from, my fa from her face and her adultery from between her breasts lest I strip her naked and make her as the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and set her like a parched land, and slay her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no pity, because they are children of harlotry, right? There are natural consequences. When a wife rejects her husband, the husband rejects her as well. All right, okay, okay, you wanna leave, leave, right? And then again, what happens when the wife is rejected and God removes his active care and provision, right? And he leaves Israel to her lovers. He will let her other lovers have her and she'll see, actually, they don't love you all that much. They don't actually care about you at all, right? Look, verses 6 and following. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her, right? The divorce, the divorce, so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, right? There, you're free. You want to love them? Go love them, right? But not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better with me then than now. He wasn't so bad, right? It also sounds like the prodigal son. Maybe I'll go home to dad. It wasn't quite that bad. And she didn't know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished upon her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. These were all held in worship for the other gods. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my hire, which my lovers have given me. He's saying, Now I gave you the sun and the rain, honey, right? I gave them to you. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them, and I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned incense to them and decked herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgotten, says the Lord. Okay, horrible, right? What happens? If you remember um, when Moses is talking to the people of Israel and he says, today I set before you blessings and cursings, right? Follow God and all these wonderful things will follow. Abandon God and terrible things will happen. This is what Moses was talking about, right? If God is your, your husband, your provider, your protector, if you turn your back on him and he leaves you to your lovers, you're going to find the world is a cold and lonely place, right? It sounds terrible. Some of the punishment cannot be helped because Israel is free to do what Israel chooses, just as we are, right? You may love your spouse, but you can't do a darn thing if they're going to take that extra drink, right? You may love your children, but you cannot prevent them from making terrible decisions when they are grown and they are beyond your control, right? You may love your children more than their peers will, right? But you can't prevent them from valuing their peers' opinion over yours. 
You can tell where I am in life, right? So, God leads Israel to make its own way. Okay. You are free to choose. You are free. You know, you made these vows to me, but you're free to go elsewhere, right? You are free to run down that path to destruction. God can love us. He can warn us. He can rage. He can foresee disaster. But Israel is free, right? And Israel thinks there is something way better just out there. There's always something better out there. But when his anger is spent, right? Oh, when these horrors are out of him, right? When anger is spent, and when Israel has made all its mistakes and then some, God promises what few human husbands will promise, right? He promises hope and reconciliation. Look at um, verses 14 and following. 14. So there's all the anger and threats. Therefore, Behold, right? They're divorced. She's run off. Horrible things have happened. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. Right? You'll know his name. Right? You'll know who loves you. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be mentioned by name no more. And I will make for you a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Right? So when we have run away and blown up our lives because we thought other things would satisfy, God says, I will woo you back to me. Right? I haven't given up on you. I was angry at you, but I have not given up on you. He promises forgiveness and a new relationship again and again. Hence the cycles, right? We run away, he, he waits, he's angry, he forgives, right? He takes us back. And even the consequences of our sin can be redeemed and good can be run from them. Jezero goes from a place of horror and punishment to God sows, which, which is what it means originally. Um, a place in 2-1... Say to your brother, my people, and to your sister, she has obtained pity, right? The children are renamed. Um, God sows covenant and faithfulness among his people again. The children get renamed, right? Not my people becomes children of the living God. Not accepted becomes lovingly accepted. So like the other God saves in the Bible, like Jesus, Hosea's life will embody and point to both God's wrath and to his resurrecting, redemptive love, right? God saves. It's interesting. Um, those verses, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. If you're an observant Jew and you wear the phylacteries, these are the verses you recite when you bind them on in the morning. 
and you go around your finger, if you look at her hand, you go around your finger like a wedding ring, right? And you say these verses. And it's, it's about that covenant again. Lord, I make this covenant with you. I make this marriage covenant with you, right? So this is the God who loves us and wants to be our husband forever, if only we would come back to him. So let's pray. Father, forgive us that we are so quick to run away from you and so quick to think you have deserted us when things get hard, so quick to forget all the good things we have received at your hands and um, all the good things you give us still that we don't recognize or we take for granted or we spend elsewhere, Lord. Lord, we give you our hearts this morning and ask, ask, give us the desire to renew our vows to you, Lord, to love you and to serve you, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, Father. We can only do that through your power, and we pray that you would incline our hearts to you this morning, Lord. Help us love you again as we loved you when we first chose you, Father. And Father, help us to see our idols that we have, and we all have them, Lord. Help us to see our idols with your eyes, to see how empty they are and how they don't love us and how they can't help us in the end, Father. Thank you that you wait for us to return. And we just pray, Lord, we praise you because you are the God who saves and the God who redeems even our sin. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>